Hello and welcome to the December 2018 edition of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. It's a bit of a bumper issue this month. We've got a host of immigration announcements just before Christmas that we need to go through. We've got two sets of the immigration rules, not just one. Um, the white paper, an immigration bill, announcements on EU citizens' rights. And we're going to run through the main policy and procedural changes so that you're aware of what's going on. Um, we're going to cover fairly briefly a few things on asylum and detention and then turn finally to a few upper tribunal reported decisions. I'm joined again this month by CJ, and CJ, over to you. Yes, uh, let's start with the first of the statements of changes to the immigration rules. This one is HC1779, and it was mostly to do with the points-based system, but I should mention that it also expands the domestic abuse settlement scheme to cover partners refugees who suffer domestic abuse. So this kind of special route to settlement for people on a partner visa who suffer domestic abuse from their sponsor. Previously, partners of refugees didn't qualify. Now they do. That's a good thing. Um, But apart from that, Colin, I think most of the changes in this statement of changes are to do with with work and student visas, the points-based system. Yes. um, Before going over that, I just quickly mention it's it's really welcome to see the the changes to the domestic um, violence, domestic abuse rules. And um, it's quite overdue because it's a couple of years since... Um, they were held to be unlawful up in Scotland. Um, just quickly to sort of flag up what's what's actually in there, um, the seasonal worker agricultural scheme pilot is included in the rules, although that's not actually going to be commenced for quite some time um, after Brexit, basically. We've got a few changes to the tier two and tier five rules as well around religious workers and charity workers, basically trying to tighten up tier five religious workers in particular, and introducing a cooling off period of 12 months so that nobody can continue to um, sort of apply for visa after visa and and stay in the UK long term in that way. Um, We've also got some changes to things like the definition of an amateur and professional sports person, which is pretty obscure. And I'm I'm reasonably confident that's directly um, linked to a case where we've just got permission to judicially review uh, one of these amateur cricket cases that there's been a little bit of sort of rumbling around in the, uh, in the background for the last uh, couple of years actually oh, so you're, you're you're taking credit for that one then Colin. I, I am i'm taking credit for that one i'm pretty I'm, I'm pretty convinced that it is linked there's somebody at the home office who is obsessed about sri lankan amateur cricket players and they keep on tweaking the rules to make it harder for them to come in i'm sure of it i'm sure of it um we've also got um, some rules which um, some new rules which caught the attention of the mainstream media on um, models high-end fashion models and um, the British Fashion Council which I'm not going to go into now and um, also some tweaks to the tier one exceptional talent um, route uh, including on um, architects basically and, and making it easier for, for architects to come in that way. Um, there's some tweaks to the student rules although they don't come into force until the 1st of August 2019 so I think we'll come back to those um, in future and and you know the, I was gonna say that's it I mean, there's quite a lot there um, but but that's the sort of headlines of what's changed absolutely and one thing that didn't change although we sort of expected it to was uh, tier one investor visas listeners might remember this kind of bizarre nonsense in the middle of December where the home office issued a press release saying that investor visas were going to be suspended for new, new applicants pretty much immediately and then nothing happened and we asked what was happening and ultimately they turned around and said, oh, oh, actually, no, we're not suspending investor visas after all. Something of a shambles, um, but that might yet. <laughs> classic classic bit of home office chaos, that one. Mm-hmm. I, but it was, it was quite special even by their own high standards, I think. Very strange, but I suppose the thing to take away is that that might yet happen at some point. They 
may not have given up on the idea. So we'll keep an eye on that one. Also, in terms of the points-based system, uh, we had ourselves an immigration white paper. So this is to do with immigration policy after Brexit and the rules that will apply to new arrivals from the EU after Brexit, assuming Brexit happens, that's all (laughs) up in the air at the moment. Um, But the main point in that was essentially accepting a lot of the recommendations from the Migration Advisory Committee in, I think, September, their major report. Probably a unified system for EU and non-EU migrants, um, but with changes to the existing system, such as no overall cap on tier two general visas, lowering the skills threshold, um, abolishing the resident labor market test, and some chat about reducing the bureaucratic burden on sponsors, which sounds great, but you know they said that when they brought in the points based system uh, initially. Yes, indeed. And, and it's, it's kind of the, the, the headline really, isn't it? is that it's about making it easier to recruit skilled workers from outside the EU. But, you know, the the huge sort of gap there is that it's going to be a hell of a lot harder to recruit skilled workers from inside the EU. And if you're a, you know, you're an employer and you want to recruit somebody from Germany at the moment, you just have to offer them a job, they can start work. And in future, that is going to be a lot harder after Brexit or after transition or whenever these new rules come into force. Absolutely. So we won't kind of canvas it in, in much detail now because we've a lot to get through. But if you um, have a look on the business immigration section of the website, we've got a summary of the uh, white paper as well as some more analysis from, from some of our contributors. So we ought to then turn to some procedural issues, uh, loosely defined. The first thing I wanted to highlight was that there is now a Home Office team that will review new evidence in pending immigration appeals. So this was originally set up as part of a review of pending cases over the summer, but the departments are now saying that this team will be retained for, I suppose, all pending appeals going forward. And they're actively encouraging immigration lawyers to put in new evidence that's relevant to pending cases if if circumstances have changed. So it sounds pretty good to me, but I don't know, Colin, if you're a bit more cynical about all this. No, and it, it seems to be a genuinely good initiative and the, the appeal success rate has been creeping up year on year. It's now just over 50%. I think this is an attempt by the Home Office to bring that success rate down, but, you know, in a in a reasonably good way. Not as good as, you know, improving the quality of the initial decisions, obviously, but, but nevertheless, you know, anything that shortens the waiting time for people and reduces their legal costs has to be a good thing. Absolutely. And there's a dedicated email address for sending in that new evidence. Uh, It's very long and complicated, but if you have a look at the article again on the website, you will find that. Also announced in December was that the immigration health surcharge would double from the 8th of January 2019. Um, That date is just in the past by the time this podcast is broadcast, but... Just to remind people, particularly if maybe for giving clients a quote for the cost of an application, uh, the health surcharge is now £400 a year instead of 200 and The lower rate for students is 300 when it used to be 150 And speaking of prices, we heard from the Solicitors Regulation Authority before Christmas that uh, solicitors have to publish their prices online, including immigration solicitors. And that came into effect on the 6th of December. So if you're an immigration solicitor, you must put information about what you charge individual clients for applications and tribunal appeals, they say, in a prominent place on your website. Now, there are quite a lot of exceptions, including asylum work and services to businesses, but it's it's worth looking into that. If you aren't across it already, it is a regulatory requirement. You have to have a price list online. 
So we should then look at a couple of court of appeal decisions. Colin, you might be better on the significance of the first one, which is called uh, Raman and Secretary of State for the Home Department's 2018 EWCA Civ 1572. And this was the one about cost in ETS cases, I think actually decided over the summer, but it only appeared on Bailey in December. Yeah, a bit of a delay with this one um, sort of reaching the sort of public um, domain. It's, we, we rather rashly announced previously that the ETS English language testing saga was over. And uh, of course, it proves not quite to be true. Um, although to be fair to us, this is just about the, the costs really of dealing with the fallout of it. And to, to just go very briefly over the background, the Court of Appeal in an earlier case called Arsan decided that um, an in-country appeal is basically um, needed in these kind of ETS, English language, cheating allegation cases. Um, the Home Office had been fighting that all the way. So there are a lot of people who've brought cases. Um, that's quite an expensive business. The Home Office is conceding those cases, as I understand it. So the question arises, who should pay the costs? And normally, you'd expect it to be the person who loses, and that would be the, per- the Home Office in, in, the, in these cases. And in this case, the Court of Appeal says basically it's normally going to be the Home Office, but it is fact sensitive to some degree. And in one of the four linked cases, um, they decided that it wasn't, um, the Home Office didn't have to pay um, the costs of the appellant, I think. So um, it's sort of broadly to be welcomed. It it provides a bit of clarity, but also a little bit of of ambiguity there as well. And must read then if you have an ETS English language case then and... Finally, in this um, sort of procedural uh, heading, we have a case called Secretary of State for the Home Department and R. Spahiu. I may be pronouncing that wrong as usual, um, but that is 2018 EWCA Civ 2604. And this is one for the litigators, really. Court of Appeal giving guidance on when you can amend grounds for judicial review before the upper tribunal. Alison Harvey wrote about it for us on the website, and she says... I think a fairly liberal decision or a, it could have been they could have been more inflexible I suppose in their guidance could have been better could have been worse I think um you know the the, pro- the problem is that any amendment to the grounds after um it's been sent to the respondent requires payment of a fairly substantial fee and I think the upper tribunal had tried to kind of engineer situations where that fee didn't always necessarily have to be payable but um I think the Court of Appeals kind of put paid to that with this decision. But in, in other ways, as Alison says, it's it's to be welcomed. It does allow for amendments to take place. Um, not so much in situations where there's a whole set of new decisions, because sometimes these kind of rolling judicial reviews, you know, you, you bring a case, um, you set out grounds, the Home Office then withdraws the decision, um, issues a new one. It's not so flexible that you can carry on with the same case in those kind of situations. Um, but it does allow you to amend um, grounds if there's good reason. And also it says that a refusal of permission to amend the grounds is reviewable as well. Excellent. So let's leave that and look at Brexit as it affects immigration law. There was a second statement of changes to the rules laid in December, as we mentioned at the outset. And this second one is all about the EU settlement scheme, the system for applying to stay in the UK after Brexit if you are an EU citizen. This this actually sort of kicked off politically in the last few weeks. A lot of people very angry about Home Office tweet about the scheme, saying basically what I've just said, that you have to apply to stay. Perhaps the implications of the scheme hadn't sunk in for many people, including MPs, the way it has for immigration nerds like us who have been following it 
being set up over the past 12 months. Yeah, it was a bit weird seeing the, the fuss about that tweet because it was quite starkly worded, frankly, but you know, it was legally accurate. We all, you know, following this scheme closely, we all knew that you have to apply or you're illegal, but it seems like you know, other people weren't quite so aware. And I suspect, as with the uh, refugee so-called crisis in the channel over Christmas, a sort of slow news period allows you know certain things that wouldn't normally have much prominence to, to become more prominent than they, they would normally be. It's probably 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 the explanation for sure. Uh, anyhow, this statement of changes is partly to open up this um, settlement scheme to most members of the public, I think, or most EU citizens, should I say, from the 21st of January 2019. From that date, everyone with a passport will be able to apply, although ID card holders who don't have a passport, I think, will have to wait until the end of March. But it also made some substantive changes to the scheme. Um, there was some controversy about the rules on, on when people could be refused under it. I think they've they've softened that slightly in in the latest um, version of the rules. Yeah, there's a change from will be refused if you've had a removal decision to may be refused, which um, I think, as as you wrote at the time, I think that's probably linked to the JCWI litigation that's going on in this. The J- JCWI Joint Council for the Welfare for uh, for Immigrants is um, bringing a case against the Home Office. Um, on the terms of the suitability criteria under the settled status scheme, basically. Yeah, and I think that litigation is going to continue. I, I don't think they're going to drop it just because they've they've softened this refusal criteria. So we'll see whether the rules are are liberalised still further. Before we move on from that one, I think it's it's worth just saying that there's there's been a what hundred percent grant rate um, so far in the people who've made an application under the settled status scheme. Not all of them have got settled status actually. Um, some of them have been granted um, pre-settled status instead because they don't have the five years of, of residence. But um, the hundred percent grant rate does hide the fact that um, about what twenty percent of cases or so haven't actually been decided as yet, and presumably. There could be some refusals in there. Uh, we don't know. We'll have to have to see. Yeah, but I suppose positive that in the two pilot schemes that they've reported on, everyone has been granted some sort of status so far. So what, what more can you ask for? Yeah, absolutely. And we're talking about what sort of fifteen thousand people, I think, um, had applied in this stage of the pilot. So you know, it's it's not it's not a small number. It's not a huge number, and it's not enough, obviously, yet. But um, it, it's it shows that they're making progress. Absolutely. Uh, we'll see. Obviously, what happens when it's open to. Three million, three and a half million um, in a couple of weeks' time. It's going to be a whole different ballgame. Just one other point on the substance of the Appendix EU rules for the scheme. One of our contributors spotted this in the Statement of Changes, Ian Halliday of McGill and Co. He's written this quick piece saying that under this latest change, a member of an EU national's household can now apply under the scheme. Now, this is using household in a quite a narrow, specific legal sense. I, I think it refers to relatives that live under your roof but aren't dependent so i don't know it may or may not be a big deal in practice but it's it's worth being aware of again it's a slight liberalization of the rules that that i know uh, ian and some some of his colleagues were concerned about we should also talk about no deal uh, because that is all too plausible an outcome at the moment uh, we're speaking in early january the government has now said what it will do in respect of EU citizens who are living here if there is no deal. And basically, the settlement scheme that we've just been discussing will continue. Um, so it was kind of drawn up under the auspices of an agreement with the EU, but they will 
continue it, even if there is no ultimate agreement. But it won't be quite as generous as if the government were bound by by that agreement. Again, there's a piece on the website uh, spelling out those changes. And the, the, as you say, the things are relatively relatively minor. I mean, they're, they're important to the people that it will affect, but they're not the core right of settlement. You know, the core right of settlement will be intact. Um, it's to do with the dates of eligibility. People arriving after Brexit won't necessarily be entitled to settled status. Um, no right of appeal. But the Home Office says that you don't need a right of appeal because if you don't get settled status, you'll get pre-settled status anyway. Um, that's not necessarily true for people who are refused on on uh, criminality grounds or things like that. But you know, for, for, for the vast majority of people, it basically means that you know the scheme will run as previously. Yeah, and I think that's what we're saying in general about the settlement scheme, isn't it? That it does seem like for the vast majority, it, it should be um, relatively straightforward. But the concerns are about the minority of people who have who are vulnerable or who don't apply or who struggle with online applications and so on. But we will see how things go when it's opened from the 21st uh, and we'll we'll have a, a run through ourselves on the website. Uh, so we will move on to the upper tribunal. There are several new decisions to discuss there. As a reminder, we cover all reported decisions of the upper tribunal on the website. So if you're signed up to our weekly newsletter, you will never miss any. And we recap them briefly on the podcast as well. So the first one from December is our Pratipati and Secretary of States, brackets, discretion, exceptional circumstances, close brackets, 2018 UKUT 427 IAC. This was pretty complicated it, i think there was a litigant in person um and it was it was basically about the discretion to allow a late visa application it's it is a complicated case she did a really good job this this litigant the person by herself and um, darren stevenson's done a, a really good detailed write-up and in some ways uh, certainly at first glance it doesn't look like the case is going to be all that relevant going forwards because the rule under which the case was decided has changed and it was back in the days when you had 28 days of overstaying permitted and that was changed Oh, it's a while ago now, actually, over a year ago, I think, to being um, 14 days and also you require good reason. So the rules have changed, basically, but the, the case probably does have ongoing significance because um, I think it's Mr Justice Kerr who made this decision, decided that the rules of fairness basically applied and that could have quite interesting implications, as as Darren says, for further litigation under the new rule as well. So to to... to quote part of the judgment it's got to be consistent with ordinary standards of plain dealing and procedural fairness required under our administrative law um, also miss justice kerr is quite critical of the administrative review process and, and makes it plain that that's not always going to be an adequate remedy and where it isn't um, judicial review is more wide-ranging and, and certainly available there in the background if needed so it, it's although as i say at first glance it might not look like it's relevant actually it does bear further inspection if you're dealing with these kinds of cases even under the new rules Absolutely. So the Darren's post that we mentioned, the headline is Tribunal Calls for a Sensible Approach to Evidence Justifying Late Applications. Uh, next case was was an EU law case. It is LS Article 45 TFEU Derivative Rights 2018 UKUT 426 IAC. And I think good news for family members of cross-border workers, Colin. Yeah, it's an interesting case, this one. And I, I confess that um, when I was reading it, I was thinking, basically, what? Um, because the you know it's it's a, it's quite obscure bit of um, of EU law and draws on a, a CJEU case that I wasn't aware of a case called S and G that's reference C four five seven twelve 
Um, actually, when you, you get down into it, it's not quite as surprising as it, it first appears. It's really based on the Carpenter case, which is, is a better known case. It's a bit like Surinder Singh. It's about, Carpenter was about a British man um, whose third country spouse was given a right of residence under EU law because she was needed in the UK to provide childcare. And because he was providing services in other EU countries, he fell within EU law. Um, and basically a similar principle is applied in this case to a worker. And the facts of the case um, involved two, um, it sounds like they were pretty high level, they're certainly very busy individuals. They worked very long hours. They had to do a lot of international travel to the EU and elsewhere. Um, the mother, mother-in-law of the couple was a third country national and the tribunal basically held that um, she was able to derive a right of residence. Otherwise, they, um, the the EU law rights of the couple would be interfered with, even though they were British, and they engaged EU law rights because they were travelling to the EU and so on. So it's, it's it's quite an interesting one. It's not an easy case or easy set of facts to succeed on necessarily. So this was this was pretty um, extreme. It was clear that an au pair arrangement couldn't work. It was clear that a nanny arrangement was completely impractical because 24-7 childcare was frequently required on an unpredictable basis. So they'd have needed something like a team of three nannies. They just didn't have anywhere for them to, to live or anything like that. So they go into a lot of detail to say that childcare really wasn't available from any other reasonable source. Um, but, you know, it's useful to know that it's it, it's out there. At least it is until Brexit, anyway. That's the thing with all, a lot of these EU law cases. Really, they they come with a shelf life, a shelf life, a shelf life. Absolutely. Um, anyhow, in um, happier news, there is another tribunal case called F B and N R and Secretary of State, twenty eighteen UK UT four two eight IAC, and this was a challenge to the Home Office's removals policy. Not, I think, formally successful, but there was enough judicial criticism of the removals policy to herald a change off off the back of the case. Yeah, it's one of those cases where, although it's not allowed as such, actually, basically, it succeeds in a in a much more general sense. Um, so it was a challenge to Chapter 60 of the Enforcement Guidance and Instructions, now called the Judicial Reviews and Injunctions um, section of the guidance. And um, basically, very substantial and major improvements have been made to that policy as a result of this litigation, um, including a lot more certainty as to when the removal window is cancelled, when it operates. A couple of new forms have been introduced to provide a bit more certainty, um, the RED005 and the RED006. Um, so it, it's a really good outcome, even if the, you know, the formal outcome of the case uh, was that um, it didn't actually succeed. Absolutely. So that's a result for Duncan Lewis and Hussein uh, of that parish has written a post about um, giving more detail. Uh, again, it's on the site. So um, there is some more we want to cover in the last part of the podcast on asylum and detention. So if you're not interested in those areas, you can now switch off. Um, but we're trying to keep the uh, discussion to a manageable length. So I'm just going to fly through a few updates on those topics. And remember, you could find more information in the relevant article on the relevant hub page of the website. So first of all, there is a new country guidance case on Iranian Kurds, citation 2018 UKUT 430. While simply being a Kurd from Iran is not sufficient to create a risk of persecution on return, Kurdish ethnicity is held to be a significant risk factor. So a must read if you have a client who fits that description. Next, there is a new report from the Home Office on a fact-finding mission to Khartoum in Sudan. The Home Office 
playing down the ill treatment of non-Arab Sudanese citizens in, in Khartoum. So again, if you've got asylum seekers of that ethnicity worth digging into that report, uh, Nick Webb has a summary of it on the site. A somewhat troubling Court of Appeal decision in the case of AM Iran and Secretary of State, that's 2018 EWCA Civ 2706. The Home Office was allowed to withdraw its concession in the course of that litigation, accepting the risk of ill treatment to the appellant, who was an Iranian Christian convert, um, admittedly not a very uh, sympathetic one. Um, Chris Cole of PRH Listers writes about it for us. Doesn't think much of the decision, and you can you can read his take to, to learn more about that. It's, it's quite a good article. There is then another rather unhappy Court of Appeal decision in TN Vietnam, 2018 EWCA Civ 2838. Appeals under the old fast-track system were not necessarily unfair, even though the fast-track system itself was unfair and unlawful. Um, again, we're not delighted with that one. Alex uh, Smytik has a post-up dissecting the ruling, again, relevant if you're dealing with um, the legacy of the fast-track system, I suppose. It has been replaced by a system called Detained Asylum Casework, um, and we've got some interesting figures obtained by Ruth Mercer showing that cases under this Detained Asylum Casework system are taking 143 days on average to be decided. Uh, Originally, uh, it was going to be 28 days. So that's people being kept locked up for an awfully long time, which Ruth argues in her pieces is, is arguably unlawful. Again, if you're interested in, in detained uh, asylum issues, worth looking at. Finally, uh, there is a case on unlawful detention, which is another one that Alex has written up, and that's R. Diop and Secretary of State's 2018 EWHC 2, excuse me, 3420 admin. Um, and the headline is that extra damages are payable for unlawful detention caused by delay in providing bail accommodation. Uh, we know from previous reports that bail accommodation has been a real nightmare recently. Um, Home Office, supposed to accommodate people who would otherwise be on the street, hasn't really been doing it. So, or at least there's, it, the process has been... Um, they haven't really set up a process to do that under the new bail system um, over the last year. So, again, that case we're checking out if you have a client who's been kept in detention for no reason other than lack of home office accommodation for release, um, extra damages awarded in that case. Whew. So, that is us up to date, I think. Well done, CJ. That was, a good, that was a good summary. You covered a lot of ground very quickly there. Yeah, absolutely. As I say, it's, it's all on the, you know, more details in, in individual articles on the site. Um, and yeah, hopefully there'll be less in January so we can have a slightly more concise podcast then. Right. Thanks for listening. If you want to claim CPD um, training for listening to this, then head over to uh, freemovement.org.uk slash training and you can sign up as a member. We put up the training courses with a, a short 10 question quiz, usually sort of same day or shortly after we get the the podcast live. So um, head there and we'll see you next month. Goodbye.